LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Peter Reynolds, leader of the UK political party CLEAR, a single issue party that seeks an end to the prohibition of cannabis. Their other key objectives include promoting as a matter of urgency and compassion the prescription of medicinal cannabis by doctors, introducing a system of regulation for the production and supply of cannabis based on facts and evidence, educating and informing about the uses and benefits of cannabis, and encouraging the production and use of industrial hemp. Whether you are a cannabis user or not, the fact that a plant which grows naturally in many parts of the earth should be subject to such draconian laws should be cause for curiosity and concern, as the situation says a great deal about freedom or lack thereof in many of our societies. Hello and welcome, Peter Reynolds, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we're here today to discuss um, the issue of cannabis prohibition, uh, as it is in the UK and in many other parts of the world as well. Um, Before we get into the main topic, perhaps you could just give us a bit about your background and uh, the political party, Clear, and um, how you come to get involved with this work. Okay. Uh, I'm a writer by trade. I was uh, in the advertising business for uh, many years um, through the heyday of advertising in in the 1980s. Um, But I've been a cannabis user for even longer. Um, I started using cannabis when I was 14. I was 55 last week, so I've been using it for quite a while. and I was always pretty outraged at the way that the law tried to interfere with what I saw as my personal liberty. Um, and I did a bit of writing to newspapers and etc. in my younger days. And in fact, probably the, the, the most important thing I did was I there was a Home Affairs uh, Committee inquiry in, into cannabis back in 1983. And I actually wrote a document and then submitted it to them back then. Um, but sort of coming roughly quickly up to date or coming up to about five or ten years ago um, I began to read more and more about the evidence that was coming out about the medicinal use of cannabis and whereas there had always been this sort of um, shall we say hippie idea that uh, cannabis was medicine and it could help you with stuff sudden, well not suddenly but there was more and more scientific evidence was coming out showing the, the, the real benefits of cannabis um, and really, this goes way beyond an issue of my personal liberty. Uh, and when, as coming right up to date now, when as you, you, I have now seen and met personally many people who use cannabis medicinally, and I see the way that it absolutely transforms their life, well, this really ignited my passion. And I, I began to write more and more about it on my blog. And eventually, uh, some people approached me, said, you know, the legalized cannabis campaign in this country is, is in the doldrums. It needs, uh, it needs leadership. Um, and cut a very long story short, uh, I found myself on the committee of the Legalized Cannabis Alliance. Um, I then found myself elected as leader. Uh, and I then took it upon myself using my skills in advertising and marketing uh, to rebrand us as Cannabis Law Reform Clear um, and uh, launch a new website um, and uh, re-register as a political party and and that's where we are today. Well a lot of um, uh, people who perhaps get their information about uh, cannabis and other sort of uh, substances shall we say through the mainstream media uh, we'll hear a lot about police raids and about uh, damage to children and about uh, you know money laundering, cannabis farms, and they may be aware of uh, some of the ways that cannabis can be processed into various forms. And all of this 
obscures the central fact that what we're talking about here is basically a bit of mother nature. Something actually is naturally occurring on this planet. It's just a leafy plant that grows, not in all areas of the world, but it just grows left to its own, you know, uh, business. And that it is a multi-purpose plant, uh, all sorts of applications for it. And uh, that it's actually been used uh, for lots of these different applications by uh, humankind for millennia. 5,000 years at least. I mean, I think the the oldest recorded archaeological discovery was in a tomb in Central Asia, it, which dates back to 2700 BC, uh, and that was psychoactive cannabis. I mean, I mean, as, as you correctly say, uh, the cannabis plant is also known as the hemp plant. Um, the only difference uh, between cannabis and hemp is, is really a modern definition, and that is the industrial hemp is uh, specified as being cannabis that has a THC content of less than 0.2%. Well, let's cut to the chase here. And uh, you know, first of all, that cannabis has not always been illegal. How could it have been? And it isn't illegal everywhere in the world. But as far as the mainstream uh, explanation for this is concerned, why is it illegal in the first place? What's being said? Why? Are, you know, if we go and ask, walk up to our local police station and say, why can't I do this? What are they going to tell us? And what do you think... Are the, are the actual motivations for it being prohibited? Well, the, what, what the, your local police station would tell you or what the, the Home Office or the Department of Health would tell you is they'd tell you cannabis is illegal because it's harmful. Um, but that has absolutely nothing to do with the reason why it was made illegal in the first place. Um, and in fact, it's got nothing to do with the reason why it remains illegal because, it, you know, compared to uh, the two most popular uh, recreational drugs, alcohol and tobacco, uh, cannabis is, is hundreds of times less harmful. Um, but, the, but the reason cannabis was made illegal in the, or prohibited in the first place, because we have to, I mean, you may think I'm being pedantic with this, but I mean, it, it's actually incorrect to say that cannabis is illegal. Um, it's the possession, cultivation, supply or importation of cannabis that's illegal. So I think it's an important distinction to recognize that, you know, you can't really make a plant illegal. No, no, what, fair enough. What, it's good to clarify that. What, 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 what the law does is it makes people's actions with the plants illegal. So it's people that are being controlled, not the plant. Um, so the reason, that can, the, the reason that cannabis was first prohibited in Europe um, goes back to the League of Nations, which was the forerunner to the United Nations. Um, and it goes back to a, a convention that I believe was drawn up in 1925, the, the Opium Convention, I believe. Um, and cannabis was included in this uh, at the last minute based on a request by the Egyptian government. And if you go back and look at the records of this, there was no debate or discussion about it. The Egyptian government came up with the idea that it wanted to include cannabis, principally because it had been lobbied by Egyptian cotton farmers. Now, you know, hemp is an alternative to cotton. Hemp is, in fact, a much better fibre for making fabric than cotton is. It's much stronger. It's much warmer. Um, it requires less processing, uh, it produces less pollution, um, and it, it, back in, in, in those days there was some significant competition between hemp farmers and cotton farmers. And the cotton farmers of Egypt managed to get cannabis included in this convention, and that was how cannabis first became prohibited in Europe. It's slightly different in America. Um, in America, it, 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 it uh, came about because of, um, really because of the end of alcohol prohibition. Uh, and al the alcohol prohibition, which I believe ended in 33, um, had built up an enormous infrastructure of people and, and, and organizations. Um, and suddenly they were all out of a job. Uh, in particular, a, a gentleman called Harry Anslinger, um, who, having been head of the Alcohol Prohibition Board, got a new job as head of the Narcotics Board and decided he was going to crack down on what they call marijuana in the States. Marijuana was a term deliberately chosen to demonize the plants because it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a Mexican word and it was chosen to be used in a sort of racist way that, you know, Hispanic and 
and black men were going to corrupt and, 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 and molest white girls um, uh, who would give up their virtue immediately as soon as they got a whiff of a marijuana cigarette. Um, so, so, so that was so, so slightly different reasons in, 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 in the US and Europe. But I mean, fundamentally, it's got nothing to do with the, um, the harmfulness of the plant. It's to do with vested interests. Um, and with political corruption. Now, it's interesting you say that it left behind that in America, that uh, uh, the end of alcohol prohibition left behind this structure um, of officialdom and basically you know, people wanting to tell other people what to do. But it also, I suppose, uh, left behind uh, criminal infrastructure as well, you know, the bootleggers. So, and a lot of, you know, criminal fraternity won't really care how they make their money as such. And uh, the, I suppose it's something else that they could perhaps switch their attention over to anything that's illegal, basically. That's right. I mean, you know, we see we, we see this today, you know, that I mean, you know, the biggest all the harms or I would say 99 percent of the harms around cannabis are to do with the fact that it's prohibited and they're to do with the criminal activity around it. And the harder you crack down on something the harder you try to stamp something out the more the price goes up and the more the price goes up the keener criminals are to be involved and then the harder you press down again the more unscrupulous they become about the methods they'll use violence becomes involved you crack down harder again they get more violent the price goes up higher it's just a terrible destructive cycle now you mentioned the uh, we've mentioned hemp twice actually and i've looked up lots of hemp products in fact if you go online and look, you'd be amazed at the number of things that you can eat and wear and do all sorts of things with, uh, with regard to hemp. And it really does seem like it's a bit of a, a super plant, you know, almost something that you know, the creation put there for us just to say, here you go. This 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 will provide you with almost everything you need to survive. And I've often been suspicious about the motivations behind the the blurring of the the cannabis and, and the hemp. Uh, lines such that in, in the US anyway I'm not quite sure what the, the status is here but in the US I mean I, I don't believe you can even grow hemp uh, yeah I mean it's it's this preposterous situation it seems that there's a there, there, that if hemp was just fully legitimized and fully exploited uh, for the great sort of crop that it is worldwide that a lot of benefits could come from that absolutely I mean you know the, the perhaps the the, the facts that, that most succinctly demonstrates the idiocy of, of hemp prohibition is that when, um, uh, before the Second World War, uh, cannabis and, and hemp had, had been banned in, in the in, in America, um, but with the outbreak of war, they actually completely reversed the position and made it compulsory for farmers in America to grow a certain amount of hemp because it was essential to the war effort. You know, it, it is it does have it is the strongest natural fibre in nature. In fact, one of the problems with hemp, and it's not, you know, there's so much nonsense talked about it as well. You know, there's, there's far too many hemp is going to save the world, great uh, crazy ideas, because one of the great problems with hemp is that it is so strong that it destroys conventional farming machinery. Uh, you need specialist equipment to harvest it. Um, and then in addition to that, and really the thing that really holds back hemp as a crop is the farmer needs somewhere to sell it. And in Britain, there's only one place to sell it, and that's uh, an, an organisation called Hemp Technology, who are based near Ipswich in Suffolk. Um, and, it, and you know, as transport is such a huge component of, of the cost, you know, if you live more than a hundred miles away from Ipswich, say 200 at the most, then I mean, it just doesn't make any viable sense. And there isn't there isn't a market for hemp until such times we have more hemp processing plants. Um, so much as hemp does offer an awful lot of benefits, and as you correctly say, you know, there are a huge, huge number of uh, potential uses for it. Until such time as we get more hemp processing plants, farmers are going to choose what crop puts food on their table. Uh, you also touched upon the, um, the, the sort of health and the medical benefits uh, earlier on, and certainly even in the years uh, since Prohibition, um, the science has evolved greatly in this area, and uh, we, we know more, more now than ever about the uh, the, the health, the health, and uh, you know well-being benefits that come from these plants. Yes, I mean I think the most crucial thing is uh, that in 1988, um, an Israeli scientist called uh, Raphael Mechelam uh, synthesized uh, THC for the first time, and also discovered the existence of the 
two cannabinoid receptors. Um, and this led to the discovery of what we now call the endocannabinoid system. Um, and, and this is a remarkable fact that, that it is very, very, very poorly uh, understood. In fact, most doctors don't know about it because, as I say, the, 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 it was only discovered in 1988. But our bodies, not just, not just our bodies, but all mammals, all reptiles, all birds and all fish have this thing called the endocannabinoid system. And, 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 and for us, the endocannabinoid system is responsible for regulating our cardiovascular system, our gastrointestinal system, our immune system, our central nervous system, and our reproductive system. And what that means is that we have microscopic amounts of chemicals pulsing around in our body, which are chemically equivalent to the chemicals you find in the cannabis plant. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing. So we have these endocannabinoids in our body, and the only source of cannabinoids outside the body is the cannabis plant. So, I mean, that probably explains why mankind has used cannabis for so long, why for so long it's been regarded as almost a panacea, and why indeed, you know, scientists and pharmaceutical companies are investigating cannabis for, for all sorts of different conditions and complaints. Do you think then that as advances are made in the medical arena, that that might be the avenue through which that this can get cannabis can get more legitimized? Or do you think that those holding the line with regard to it as a dangerous drug, that, that that's going to prove too hard to, to push back? I think, I think the main thing that holds uh, cannabis back or keeps cannabis prohibited at the moment is the alcohol lobby. Um, Professor David Nutt said just a few weeks ago that he believes that if cannabis was legally regulated and available in Britain, then it could reduce alcohol consumption by up to 25%. Now, you can imagine how terrified of that the alcohol companies will be, um, but you can also imagine what an absolutely dramatic effect that would have on public health. Um, and that really is the, the main factor at the moment. I mean, you know, the most ridiculous thing perhaps is, is that the, the British government continues to maintain what is a, an absurd and blatant lie, and they use the precise words, there is no medicinal value in cannabis. Yet simultaneously, or, or 10 years ago, uh, they granted a license, the Home Office granted a license to GW Pharmaceuticals to grow cannabis for medicine. Um, despite the fact that, in fact, under the Misuse of Drugs Act, because cannabis is in Schedule 1, which says it has no medicinal value, the only basis on which, on which the Home Office is entitled to issue these licenses is for what's called research or other special purposes. But, in fact, GW have been provided with this license, which they're now using to grow cannabis, to make into medicine, and to sell for commercial gain. So the whole thing is completely unlawful. The whole thing is completely outside the law. Um, and so there's obviously an, in, an interest um, from the people who are involved in this conspiracy, and it is a conspiracy, um, to, to, to maintain the status quo. But also, even if um, there were people within the political structure who were willing to, and then, well, there are some, of course, but people really their hands on the levers of power who said, this is an absurd situation, it's, a, it's paradoxical, it's ridiculous, we're going to change it. There is such hysteria uh, I mean, I have to call it that when I mean, especially in the sort of the Daily Mail set, exactly. that that cannabis is one step on the road to being, you know, uh, a heroin addict. <laughs> that uh, mm -hmm. it's very difficult for anybody to say anything in the public arena um, when they, you know, the sort of conservative, uh, say, Daily Mail types come down on them like a ton of bricks, and it's not worth them sticking their head above the parapet. Exactly. I mean, that, that's, you know, as I say, the main reason, there's three, three re reasons, really, why cannabis remains prohibited. The alcohol lobby, the Daily Mail, and GW Pharmaceuticals. Um, there, there, there are lots of MPs who, who know the truth, um, but, you know, even, I mean, I'll give you the, the most obvious example from the Conservative side is Peter Lilly. Um, who is who, an ex-minister who for many years has supported the legalization of cannabis. Um, on the Labour side, Paul Flynn, um, but also some more surprising names, Tim Yeo, 
um, had a, a, his son um, had cancer some years back and used cannabis as medicine and, and, and now he's a, an ardent supporter of the legalization of cannabis um, but on the other hand you get you know one of the most surprising things in politics I think is that what can, the cannabis issue has demonstrated is how um, authoritarian repressive the left is um, the, the Labour governments, the Labour governments of the past, have been much more repressive and, and, and inflexible about cannabis. I mean, the, you know, the story about David not being sacked by Alan Johnson, um, the absurd um, attitudes that Jackie Smith has taken, and, and people, are, as you say, are just scared to put their head above the parapet because they know they'll be splashed all over the Daily Mail the following day. Yeah, supporting the use of these evil drugs that are corrupting our youth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Exactly. Um, the, the the idea of cannabis being dangerous, um, and I've certainly spoken to, you know, people in the mainstream who have never been, uh, you know, users of anything illicit, and they're under the impression that you smoke it and that's all there is to it, and furthermore, you smoke it with tobacco. Um, of course, that's just part of the picture, and that aspect of it being unhealthy is completely unnecessary. Well, yes, I mean, obviously, you can eat it. Um... Uh, the, the modern way to take it, or the, the modern way to take it, particularly in a medicinal context, is to use a vaporizer. Um, these are uh, hot air devices that blow air at a controlled temperature um, across the cannabis, which then vaporizes the, the, the compounds in the cannabis so that you inhale it as vapor. Therefore, there's no uh, products of combustion. Um, and, and there's no um, negative health effects as a result of that. Um, so, so that's the modern way to do it. Um, but, uh, you know, for instance, the Dutch government's official medicinal cannabis supplier, Bedrican, they advocate making an infusion, or in other words, making tea out of it. Um, that's the way they recommend you use it. Well, the, the issue as well of um, uh, cannabis being a sort of gateway to, to harder drugs, I mean... I, that just doesn't stand up. As someone who's uh, tried various drugs, uh, probably most of the quote-unquote popular things, um, they're very different experiences for the most part. And this is just a fallacy, the idea that if someone tries cannabis for the first time, however they try it, that they're, they're going to like lose their self-control, lose their, their will, and this will automatically lead to either just very heavy cannabis use, which is debilitating, uh, or, you know, the use of uh, harder substances, which may have actual uh, real, real dangers. In a word, it's nonsense. And I mean, even you know, the last government report on the subject, the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs reported into cannabis in 2008, so there was no evidence to show any validity in the gateway theory. Um, there, there is one aspect in which cannabis can be a gateway to, to other drugs, and that is the people you buy it from. Um, because by definition, the people you're buying it from are, are illegal uh, street dealers. And, you know, it, it's very true that they may well have in their other pocket um, some cocaine or some ecstasy or, 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 or you know, heroin. Um, so, so, I mean, in that sense, once you, because one has to operate in the illegal market in order to buy cannabis, it is possible you can come into touch with other things. But that's not a harm of cannabis. That's a harm of prohibition. And you mentioned the, um, quite rightly, the, the alcohol uh, industry and the, the alcohol lobby. Now, we don't often think of that something that needs to be pushed, you know, sort of like booze sells itself, really, doesn't it? You know, the benefits are obvious. But uh, that is a factor in all of this. And of course, to, I mean, alcohol and tobacco, we think of cigarettes being sold separately. Um, alcohol and tobacco are incredibly profound uh, health issues uh, if you go above certain limits. I mean, people have got different tolerances, but there's a huge cost to society and and the state uh, as a result of alcohol and tobacco use. Well, I mean, you know, alcohol is responsible for an excess of one million hospital admissions each year. Um, cannabis is responsible for approximately 750 hospital admissions each year. Um, obviously, more people use alcohol than use cannabis, but if you actually uh, adjust for that, then you'll discover that you're six times more likely to experience mental health problems from the use of alcohol than you are from cannabis. So, I mean, that really sticks the psychosis scare story, uh, put, puts that to bed. 
Um, but I mean, no, the cost, I mean, I believe t uh, tobacco is directly responsible for something around 100,000 deaths each year in Britain. Alcohol, depending upon exactly whether you include accidents as well as, you know, uh, physiological related conditions, alcohol is responsible for somewhere between 18 and 30,000 deaths. And there have no deaths ever been recorded in, 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 in as, as far as cannabis is concerned. Just a side point, um, would you be in favour of a sort of a blanket uh, legalisation or decriminalisation of, of all drugs, just in the idea being that then it brings it to the surface and, you, you know, you've got a purer product and actually we can then see how many people actually do want to shoot up heroin every day and we realise actually it's not very many people. Okay, well, two things. I mean, first of all, decriminalization is a dangerous option. I mean, it really is a dangerous option, and I'll explain why. I mean, I can see that it might be an interim step to say that personal possession of drugs uh, is decriminalized, but in the longer term, it's a dangerous option, and that's because most of the harm that arises from any drugs comes from the supply chain. It comes from the dealers, the importers, you know, the, the organized crime that is behind it. So, you know, if, if you simply decriminalize personal possession, then you're not going to, you, the harm, the greater harm that is done to society. In the case of cannabis, you know, the, the, what's going on at the moment with rental properties being taken over, destroyed, with, you know, children being engaged in street dealing, etc. None of that is going to be done away with by decriminalization. What will do away with that is proper legal regulation and Claire's policies relate only to cannabis okay so I'm now speaking in a personal capacity but my personal view is that the more dangerous and the more harmful a drug is the more important it is that it's legally regulated um, 70 percent of all acquisitive crime is said to be drug related and that means addictive drug related basically her basically heroin and a little bit of cocaine um, and, and if we uh, simply went back to the system we used to have back, back, back before the Misuse of Drugs Act where doctors could prescribe heroin on a reducing basis and providing that the person concerned you know signed up to treatment um, then we would take away, we completely remove, we solve the AIDS, or almost completely eliminate the AIDS problem. We see in Portugal where, where, where they've taken this approach where the, the HIV and AIDS figures have dropped dramatically. Um, we'd solve the acquisitive crime problem because, you know, if you're an addict for whatever reason, um, if you've got the option of, you know, if you're a woman going out and selling your body or if you're a man going out and mugging somebody or you've got the option of going to a clinic and getting what you know is, is clean, uh, pure, safe product, um, then, then what are you going to choose? So, 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 so to my mind, or, or, although in a sense I'm under, undercutting my own position here, to my mind, the more harmful and the more dangerous a drug is, the more important it is that it should be legally regulated, strictly regulated, clearly. And the more harmful and more dangerous it is, the more strict the regulation should be. Yeah, when I said decriminalise, I didn't actually mean to take the weight of the law away from it, but, but leave the uh, production and distribution networks and you know uh, systems in place. Uh, I didn't think that was a good idea. But perhaps you could say something then, uh, just because some people will be getting legalisation and regulation conflated in their heads. Perhaps you could just say something about the differences between the two. Well, I mean, I think... Uh... You know, we, we try to stay away from the word legalization because legalization gives the impression of a free-for-all. You know, and you commonly you'll get into discussions with people and they'll come up with ridiculous ideas like, oh, it's going to be available for sale in Tesco's and Sainsbury's, and is it? Um, no, I mean, in fact, what we're proposing, what regulation proposes is, in fact, more control than we have at the moment. You know, prohibition provides no control at all. It's easier for a child to go out and buy cannabis or indeed to buy cocaine or heroin than it is to get hold of alcohol. The only ID that a dealer asks for is a £20 note. So what, what we would do, and we've got detailed proposals which anybody can find on our website, just Google, Google Clear UK. We've got detailed proposals for the regulation of cannabis in Britain and it would mean that cannabis will be available through licensed outlets, through a limited number of licensed outlets, to adults only, if there's any doubt about your age, you have to show ID, just as if you're buying alcohol. Um, and people will be allowed to grow a, 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 a specified number of plants or under a specified number of lights in their own home. 
um, and you know there'd be some control over over this massive market. I mean, the cannabis market in Britain we know is worth in excess of six billion pounds a year, and that's all in the black economy. We know there are over three tons of cannabis consumed in Britain every single day. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that's another point is there's there's a great deal of hypocrisy about this. There'll be people right down to politicians grandstanding on in the media about uh, cannabis and other drugs as well, but, you know, about cannabis, who themselves are regular users or whatever. So, I mean, what, what sort of figures are we looking at? If it, do we, is it possible to get any accurate figures for the number of people in the UK, for example, who have tried cannabis and or are, are users? When, when I was elected as leader and, and when um, I set out or began to develop uh, our new strategy, um, I recognised that one of the most important things we needed was, you know, a solid... Uh, statistical base to work from and so we commissioned a, a study from the independent drug monitoring unit which is a very well respected research organization its biggest customer in fact is the crown prosecution service so they're hardly a you know they're not a pro-cannabis organization uh, we commissioned a study from them uh, which again is available on our website it's called taxing the UK uh, cannabis market and it's um, Based on official government statistics, it, it makes, um, you know, by definition, their estimates, but it makes, um, it, it's the most up-to-date, independent expert research available. And what we know is that 30% of all adults will use cannabis in their lifetime. Um, at present, somewhere around about 3 million people use cannabis at least once a month. So there's 3 million regular users. Um, and as I say, some of the other figures I've just given you, the market is worth in excess of six billion. There's something like 1,200 tons of cannabis consumed in Britain every year. Um, and based on the proposals that we've put forward for tax and regulate, which would involve a tax on cannabis of one pound per gram per five percent of THC, then we predict that 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 if we if that regime was introduced. It will produce a net gain. This is after all the new costs of regulation, etc. It will produce a net gain to the UK economy of in excess of nine billion pounds a year. Yeah, and as you say, those that, that's broken down in some detail on your website. If people want to go through the numbers, um, you mentioned the Netherlands. Uh, obviously, a lot of people will be aware that there's a somewhat different regimes been operating over there for some time. Now, I know in the news recently, uh, there's been talk of, I believe, I'm not sure if it's in, across the whole country or whether it's just in some cities, the government are wanting to ban foreigners from using the, the cannabis cafes there, which is absurd, you know, because it seems to me it's a great money spinner. I mean, a, a lot of people go to uh, the Netherlands specifically to do that. Um, so what what is that, the, what has the Netherlands kind of situation taught us? It's sort of as an experiment. Okay, well, um, I mean, the reason the Dutch... Uh Cannabis is not legal in Holland. Um, the, the Dutch have a policy which is based on a Dutch word, gedogen, which means tolerance. And essentially what they do is they, they, they don't prosecute anybody for five grams or less. Um, and they, in, in some way or another, license coffee shops. And I believe there's a limit on coffee shops. They're allowed to have, I think, up to about half a kilo without getting prosecuted. Um, but this new idea that's come in from, from the... Uh, well, of course, the Dutch government changed on September the 12th, and so it's all a bit in abeyance at the moment. But this this new idea that came in is called the Vietpass, or the Weed Pass, or the Cannabis Card. And the idea is that you have to be a member of the coffee shop, and you can only be a member if, if, if you're a Dutch citizen. Now, this is already, it was introduced initially in the southern uh, uh, cities, and it's supposed to roll out across the whole country by the 1st of January. The mayors of Rotterdam and Amsterdam and The Hague are all you know, very firmly opposed to it because they recognize the huge damage it's going to do to their tourist industry. And already in the southern cities, um, in Maastricht, we've seen a massive upsurge in uh, street dealers, um, in violence associated with the cannabis trade. I mean, it's just absurd because instead of people being able to go into a coffee shop and buy it in a civilized fashion, there are now people out on the streets selling it to them who are also offering them cocaine um, and, and heroin. Uh, they don't really know what they're buying. I mean, it's just a disastrous policy. And, you know, I, I mean, I lived in Holland for two years. My sister lives in Holland now. I know Holland very well. The Dutch people are far too sensible to let this persist. It'll crumble and fall away. Mm. Well, I, I do hope so, because it's for, for a long time it's been uh, pointed to when, you know, when there's been a bit of Daily Mail 
style hysteria about cannabis, people are pointing to uh, the Netherlands, uh, you know, as a good example of how this can actually work. You know, not saying it was completely free of problems, but it did demonstrate the hysteria around it was was unwarranted. If you look at the figures from the European Monitoring Centre for Drugs and Drug Addiction, Holland has the the fewest, the lowest number of children using cannabis. It has the highest age at first use in the whole of Europe because there's legally legally regulated availability for adults. By contrast, in this country, we have the lowest age at first use and the highest number of children using cannabis. If you're a responsible uh, cannabis-using adult, uh, a parent, broaching that subject with your child or children, but is that similar sort of territory to how you would deal with talking to them about alcohol or cigarettes? I would say so. I mean, uh, I think, you know, things have changed a bit in recent years because of the smoking ban and the fact that smoking in itself is just generally not as acceptable as it used to be. I mean, I've got two boys, they're 25 and 20, 22 now, so they're well grown up. But I mean, I was always very open with them about it from, from an early age. Um, I used to tell them what it was. Um, I used to tell them that it was illegal. I used to tell them I'd get in trouble if anyone found out I was smoking it. Um, and I was very, very open with them about it. I mean, I think we often, you know, the one, the one, the government always goes on about uh, sending messages to children and how, you know, we, we, we can't legalize cannabis because it would send the wrong message. You know, the only message that the government sends to children about drugs is that it doesn't tell them the truth. And children know that. And I think if we get what we should do, it's all about education. You know, what we need to do with children is give them the facts. And I think, you know, if we give them the facts, then um, I think that they tend to deal with it a lot more sensibly than perhaps we expect them to. Well, I know one of the reasons that I had zero interest in drinking alcohol or trying to get my hands on cigarettes when I was younger is because no one ever told me not to do it. I mean, that was that was really important, actually. Absolutely. I mean, I remember, as I say, I started smoking cannabis when I was 14. And I can remember meeting, um, you know, I can remember it vividly. I can remember meeting my, my friend, John Pooler, on the way home from school. He went to one school, I went to another. And we used to meet at the end of the footpath that went down to his house um, each, each evening. And he said to me, I've got it. And then they showed it to me. And, you know, that we went back to his house and uh, got out an LP and rolled up our first joint on it. And I remember we were both violently sick but I mean very much for me for those first couple of years it was all about the thrill of forbidden fruit it was about mm. being naughty that it was the, the sort of glamorous aspect of it that's what led me into it you know um in in in, in Holland it, it's it's um it, it's not seen as such a cool thing to do no it's more uh, more run of the mill there isn't it it's just seen as uh, you know like I don't know, like eating or drinking something that somebody else might not like. It's like, oh well, whatever you like it. You know, I have no interest in it. It's not a, it's not a, not an emotive subject. Yeah, yeah. Now, what's the situation globally in terms of? Because it's easy to sort of look at the situation in uh, the UK, uh, make comparisons with the EU, make comparisons with the US. Um, but I mean, are the sort of drug laws that we have um, and they're familiar with in some other similar countries are they typical? Uh, as far as the, the rest of the world's concerned? Well, I mean, you know, there's a thing called the um, European Single Convention on Narcotics from 1961, um, which uh, essentially um, determines what drug laws are across the world. Um, but it's not quite as restrictive as governments would, would wish you to believe, uh, because what it's mainly concerned with is drug trafficking. Um, and, and if, if you know, if your if your country's a signatory to the convention, which nearly all countries are, um, then you are obliged to uh, prevent drug trafficking. But you're perfectly entitled to implement local policies, which which you believe are are, are better for your country. I mean, uh, the situation in the U.S. is extraordinary. I mean, we now have 17 states in the U.S. where uh, which have introduced a, a medical marijuana program whereby people are uh, able to access uh, cannabis uh, on the basis of a recommendation from a doctor. Um, and very exciting, uh, coming up in, in the, with the presidential elections in November, we have at least two states, uh, Colorado and uh, Washington, D.C., which is a district, um, looking to completely legalize or regulate cannabis. And it looks very, very likely that Colorado is going to pass this. Um, 
regulate cannabis like wine is 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 the slogan um now if they do this um they're going to run straight into the feds the uh, federal uh, uh drug enforcement administration and no one knows what's going to happen um uh you know there's a, there's an uh, there's a whole separate argument about states rights in the US and what whether you know when, whether states should be allowed to pass this sort of legislation without the federal government getting involved but it does look very very likely that Colorado is going to legalize um elsewhere Uruguay is uh, at the moment got a bill going through its parliament um whereby the government itself is going to take over the production and sale of cannabis um, the Czech Republic uh, is moving very rapidly towards towards a completely legally regulated system. So, you know, on the other hand, if you go back to Malaysia and Singapore, they are still hanging people for cannabis. So, you know, th th there's a wide range of uh, uh, local situations. But I mean, it's it, 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 legal regulation of cannabis, I believe, is inevitable. Um, it's just a question of time. When we go back, we talked earlier about millennia of, uh, of human use of this plant for uh, different purposes, you know, practical health, you know, recreational. Is it only in recent times, sort of in, in the last century, that this negative uh, aspect has come, this demonization? Um, I mean, did mankind exist, you know, with cannabis sort of peaceably uh, across the millennia or have there been other times when it's been subject to controversy? Well, b before... Um the Misuse of Drugs Act came in in 1971, you could get tincture of cannabis from your local pharmacy. Um, and, and one of the main reasons why, why that, it was, that, that was banned with the Misuse of Drugs Act was that a few doctors were advising people that what they could do was take a little bit of the tincture, smear it on a cigarette paper, and then make, make a roll-up with it. Um, and if you go back even further, if you go back perhaps 100 years, then believe it or not, something around 50% of all medicines in the British pharmacopoeia contain cannabis. Um, Queen Victoria very famously used it for um, period pains and for arthritis, and she wrote about it. She was a, a keen advocate of it. Um, so, you know, it is only in the last 100 years. Um, uh, you know, obviously a great deal of it has come from the States, where, where uh, Mr. Anslinger, uh, with the assistance of Randolph Hearst, the media magnates decided to deliberately to demonise cannabis. Um, the, 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 I think, you know, as I said, the alcohol lobby has its part to play in the states as well. But the main issue in the states is the prohibition industry, the huge infrastructure of people, and, and the vast number of jobs involved. Not to say private prisons. You know, I believe. I mean, um, I believe there are something like eight hundred thousand people prosecuted for cannabis every year in the states, and there are hundreds of thousands of people in jail in the states for cannabis. And of course, one of the problems is that keeps other people in jobs. We see it in this country, and and, and particularly in uh, in the EU, coming out of Brussels, this this huge parasitic sort of um, infrastructure of completely non-productive, uh, quote-unquote, industries. You know, which is basically a lot of it is just pure regulation, but it's just bureaucracy. It's self-sustaining. When we talk about um, the, there's, there's always a small number of individuals that seem to be involved in legislating against these things and controlling what the, the majority can do. In your experience, how much are we talking about just a pragmatic approach from some of these these people and organisations based probably on you know economics in the background and you know brown envelopes and you know favours from mates and all the rest of it and how much of it is is driven by actual zealotry you know almost like a religious conviction that this is what needs the way things need to be and that people have to be stopped from doing what they want to do. Well, I think I think you know as we as we found out with politics in this country all the time you know the civil service is uh, one of the great enemies of reform and progress. And I think, you know, many ministers move into their new department full of um, enthusiasm for reform and stuff, and they're very quickly told by civil servants they can't do this and they can't do that. Um, I think it's it's, it's also you, you you know you would think that the economic argument, as I just went through earlier on, you know, potential uh, gain of nine billion a year, you'd think that would have a huge impact, particularly in our present circumstance. You'd think that the health arguments would have a huge impact. You know, there are people out there with MS, with Crohn's disease, with chronic pain, 
who, who can use cannabis and who it can transform their life. You'd think any of these things could be the lever that, 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 that would make the, 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 the obstinate dam of prohibition break. And I, I, but no, no, no one of them, not, well, not the single one, seems to work. Um, in fact, you know, the terrible thing is that, I mean, I always used to believe that it was the medicinal argument that would win. Um, but in fact, the reason that people don't have access to medicinal cannabis, I now understand, is because recreational cannabis is banned. So in, in, in order to prevent people having access to recreational cannabis, the medicinal users, people who need it as medicine, and I mean, when I use the word need advisedly, people who need it as, med as medicine are prevented from having access to it, which is disgusting. So if someone uh, reads about, and there is quite a lot out there, someone who uh, is ill has some sort of condition and they read about the potential benefits of cannabis, it's, if, they, if they're not plugged into, a, a, how should we put it, an underground infrastructure where they, they, they know that they can go to such and such a street corner on such a day or go to such a pub and ask for Jimmy, they, they, they've got no way of accessing this in a safe manner. They've literally got to go into the, you know, the, the underworld, haven't they, really? Exactly, exactly. I mean, the other, the other terrible thing which we haven't touched on uh, which is really quite extraordinary, and, and vast majority of people don't understand this. In Europe, you can get medicinal cannabis from a doctor in every country except Britain and France. Mm. And what, what's more, the, the biggest supplier of medicinal cannabis is the people I mentioned earlier. That's the Dutch government's official supplier, Bedrican, and they export all over Europe. And I mean, they could easily start exporting to Britain tomorrow. But the real, the thing that really outrages me is that if you're a resident in one of these other countries in Europe where you're allowed to get medicinal cannabis then under the protection of the Schengen agreement you can bring your cannabis to Britain and use it without restriction so quite literally if you've obtained a, a prescription for medicinal cannabis in Holland or in Belgium or in Italy and you're resident in that country then you can come to Britain you could sit at a cafe uh, in Covent Garden and roll yourself a joint and smoke it. Nothing that could be done to you, whereas if you were sitting next to a British resident, they theoretically could go to jail for 14 years. The, the confusion that that engenders, it, it's just not helpful at all. People think that they know what the legal situation is, and then actually find out they don't, and it's very difficult to find out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's absurd. It's just completely absurd. I, I've got to thinking, when sometimes I'll speak to people um, who have never taking cannabis in any form and I'll be talking to them about the effects, uh, the experience and it, I've pondered sometimes about what if there's something deeper behind the situation and the law regarding cannabis because it might sound a little bit fanciful but the cannabis experience at its best, for me anyway, I think it, 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 it encourages a, a wider view of reality and it can open you sometimes to some of the subtle energies that are at work and at play in the universe and can make you pause and just take your thinking and your sort of reconfigure your brain in interesting ways. And it can lead to some interesting, you know, some interesting thought corridors you can go down that, that end in some interesting places. And to cut a long story short, I think if anything that opens people up to a new way of thinking about the reality that they're part of is, is potentially dangerous. I, I would agree with you. Um, uh, but I think if you think that that's one of the reasons why it's banned, then I think you're probably ascribing too much intelligence to the authorities. Um, uh, I, I think it's very true that cannabis does uh, uh, promote new ways of thinking um, and enable you to think in different ways. Um, and for that reason, it's been associated with uh, uh, perhaps revolutionary is too strong a word, but it's been it's been associated with movements and with people who I mean, you know, two of the most one of the most extraordinary cannabis users in the world ever was Francis Crick, mm -hmm. the man who discovered DNA. Another one was Craig Ventner, the Nobel Prize winner who discovered the process by which DNA replicates. And both these people have said not just cannabis, LSD as well. They've said how using these substances has enabled them to have new insights and think about things in new ways, which led directly to their discoveries. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. 
Uh, I think that is true. And there is a body of opinion that says this is the fundamental reason why, can- why cannabis remains banned. But uh, I, I'm afraid I, I don't buy that. I, I think you're, you're giving too much in- intelligence, too much uh, credit to the authorities. So I don't think they think that deeply. No, and also you mentioned some scientific advances there, uh, but but also um, a lot of people will be familiar with um, in the creative arena. If we just think about uh, you know, are the rock stars, the pop stars down the decades, and um, you're struggling to name any big um, you know music star of the last fifty years that hasn't had some kind of dabbling, even if it was just booze, but something that took their creativity creativity to another level and of course i don't want to say that it's it's uniquely creative because it can be quite the opposite i've seen people musicians who get up in the morning you know light up the joint and they proceed to sit on the couch all day yeah i mean you know of course cannabis makes you lazy destroys your motivation you can't be bothered to do anything unless of course your name happens to be uh, Mick Jagger or Keith Richards or John Lennon or Paul McCartney or you know Chris Martin or um, Lady Gaga or indeed Michael Phelps <laughs> or, Car- or Carl Sagan yes. or a- Anthony Joshua, our new boxing gold medalist. You know, um, the, 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 that is one of the other great myths about cannabis. This idea that I mean, if they're not telling you it makes you lazy and apathetic, then they're trying to tell you it makes you violent and psychotic. You know, basically. Every single um, uh, pejorative uh, remark that can be made against cannabis has been made, and if one doesn't seem to work, they switch to using another. Yeah, and also be some. It's difficult to say uh, uniquely positive things about alcohol, for example, because there's such manifest evidence for the negative side effects that it can have. But it seems to be easy for um, you know the Daily Mail, etc., etc., to demonize cannabis and people who who like to use it recreationally because for a lot of people they don't have first-hand experience and they'll you know because drugs get rolled in together you know heroin and uh, cocaine and the whole lot um they only ever hear negative things and because they don't have that first-hand experience uh it's very difficult for them to judge and when they do have it they perhaps they perhaps know someone who might be an accountant or a banker or you know a surgeon or something who will have recreational uh, smoke occasionally uh, then they see that someone can be functional and a cannabis user, and it does change things. I think people don't understand what the effect of cannabis is, and people people don't realise it's actually a very subtle effect, much more subtle than alcohol. Um, I mean, I've you know I've got nothing against alcohol. I drink alcohol. I probably drink too much alcohol, but I mean, cannabis is a much more subtle effect, um, and a much more peaceful effect. Yeah, well, I mean, perhaps it's, uh, I don't know how you would sum it up. It's, it's one of those things, it's very difficult to put into words. But if you were, if we're speaking now to someone who's never tried cannabis and maybe never even smoked a cigarette, um, uh, how would you try and, you know, sum up the, you can't sum it up, it's completely impossible. How would you try and characterize the experience? I would say that cannabis um, promotes a warm, um, convivial feeling. Um it uh, pr- promotes the imagination. Yes, I had a warm, convivial feeling, which tends to spark the imagination. Also, further to what I was saying earlier, but if I'm telling people about my experience, I say to them, look, the bottom, the bottom line is that uh, through you know gentle cannabis use, I realize that everything in existence is connected. And so it's really important that we respect that as we go about you know, what we do and how we live. I said that was pretty big revelation for me, and it changed my life for the better. Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think that's right. I think it does give it, it gives you insights. I mean, I think one, one of the things. I mean, you see, a lot of people, for, for instance, one one of the um, main medicinal uses of cannabis is for people who have uh, suffer from problems such as ADHD, um, depression. Um, even OCD Um, and what cannabis tends to do for these people is it tends to provide coherence to their thoughts Um, now the the other side of that coin if you like the the, the negative side of it is that it can make you obsessive I mean I think one of the reasons that music can sound so much better on cannabis is because it tends to make your thoughts and makes you almost in a way enables you to concentrate uh, harder Um, but there can be a negative aspect of that. Um, it's like everything in life. It's about balance. Um, 
and and as I said right at the beginning of, of, of this, uh, you know, cannabis has always has always had been a positive force in my life. I've, I personally have never experienced anything negative from it, um, and until recently. Um, I'd never met anybody who'd experienced anything negative from it. But it would be wrong to say that cannabis is entirely risk-free. You know, children should not use cannabis. There's good evidence to show that uh, in the developing brain it can be harmful, um, as can any psychoactive substance. Um, but, but certainly for, for adults, um, can cannabis is, um, is pretty much safe. Well, that's one of the other things in terms of uh, downsides that you, you read about often is psychosis and uh, extreme paranoia and what have you. But in my experience, um, it's basically what's already in your head is already there. Cannabis doesn't so much add anything to it or introduce anything new there. It can only reflect and amplify what's already there. So if True. someone gets extreme paranoia or they become psychotic, um, it might be a little bit you know, controversial to say, but then that was already there. Yeah, I mean, again, there, there is evidence to show that if you do have a, uh, a predisposition to some sort of mental illness, then it is possible that cannabis could trigger it, you know. But, I mean, we're talking, the level of risk we're talking about is, is, is minuscule. I mean, again, um, uh, as I explained earlier, the, the statistics, the hospital admission statistics show quite clearly that you're six times more likely to experience mental health problems from alcohol. But if you look at some, there's a study done by... Um, uh, the group who work at the universities of Bristol and Cardiff, um, Dr. Hickman, uh, Dr. Zamet, and Professor Lewis, um, who, who, who looked at it, reviewed all the published evidence on, on the subject of cannabis and psychosis. So by definition, it's not, this is not a cherry-picked study because it's looking at all of the studies. And they showed that the, the, the risk, that the, there's, no, there's no proof that cannabis actually causes these things. All you can prove is a correlation. But the risk of a lifetime's cannabis use correlating with a single diagnosis of psychosis is at the worst 0.013% um, and is probably more likely 0.003%. So we, we, which means that you'd have to stop 30,000 people ever smoking cannabis in their life in order to prevent one diagnosis of psychosis. And if you compare that as a risk factor to anything else, then the risk is absurdly small. Now, over the last two or three governments in the UK, cannabis has been reclassified a couple of times, upwards and downwards, you know, and uh, for, you know, political reasons. But just to sort of, to round up, perhaps you could just say a word about, you know, where we are in this, at the minute in the UK and what, and what gives you grounds for um, optimism. What basically keeps you doing what you're doing? Okay, um... Cannabis is presently a class B drug, which means, as I say, I believe you, you can theoretically get up to 14 years in jail for, for it. Um, but one of the most important things that's happened recently is in uh, March, I think it was of this year, the new Sentencing Council guidelines came out. Um, and they make it clear that if providing you, in terms of possession, providing you have less than 100 grams or 4 ounces, for a first offence, um, then it's going to be very minor. It's going to be a small fine or, or, or a low-level community order. And even when it comes to growing cannabis, they've introduced new uh, limits. Uh, providing you keep it to less than nine plants, um, then again, you're, if it's a first offence, you're only going to get a very small fine or a low-level community order. But what's even more significant about, about these guidelines is that, of course, it means the police aren't interested. So whilst there are still criminal penalties there, and, and, and if you get caught or if the police decide to, to, to arrest you for it, then you can be charged, you can end up with a criminal record. The fact of the matter is that because the sentences are so low, the police aren't interested. So you know, my advice to anybody is be discreet, be responsible. If you're going to grow cannabis, keep it to fewer than nine plants and you should be okay. Okay, well, Peter, perhaps um, just to finish off, you could uh, tell people um, the clear website. There's a lot of resources on there if people are interested, and uh, anything else you'd like to, to share. Okay, well, um, I won't bother giving you the the, uh, the full address for the website. It's very simple, just to go to Google and, and, and look for Clear UK. Um, you'll also find our Facebook page that way. Um, the Facebook page is very active. Um, every day we're posting up uh, all the latest newspaper articles about cannabis. Most of them are about um, 
uh, you know, grow houses or cannabis factories, as the media insists on calling them, being busted. And we have a program called Comment Warriors, whereby we have teams of people who actually go onto each of these newspaper websites and, and, and post comments explaining the truth about cannabis. So this is a really uh, grassroots effort to, to, to educate and get across the truth. Um, you can sign up and join Clear. It's very inexpensive. It's £10 a year. Um, if you're in employment, uh, if you're if you're a concession, in other words, if you're unwaged or if you're an old age pensioner, then it's just five pounds a year. Um, the biggest thing at the moment is that I am standing as a candidate in the Corby by-election in November. Um, I'm not expecting to win, um, but I am expecting to put the cannabis issue on the agenda. Um, we're, what we're seeking to do is ask the people of Corby to give us their protest votes, because what, one thing they can be certain of is if they vote Tory or they vote Labour, absolutely nothing will change. And the cannabis issue is an excellent um, example of how the major parties don't listen to public opinion, um, how they don't base policy on evidence. So we're saying to the people of Corby, give us your protest vote. If you vote for clear, your vote's going to be worth 10 times or 100 times what it would be if you voted for Labour or Tory. So, you know, what I would urge people to do is to go and have a look at the Clear website. Please join up. We have lots of people who are members who aren't cannabis users because cannabis affects everybody in this country, whether or not you're a cannabis. Even if you don't like cannabis, it still impacts on you and the ridiculous laws against it impact on you. So please go to the Clear website, sign up, become a member, add your voice to the campaign and I predict within within the life of this parliament, I really believe we're going to have progress. I'm not saying that cannabis is going to be fully legally regulated, but I think we're certainly going to have some relaxation on medicinal use. And I think there's a good possibility we may even get some form of decriminalization. Excellent. Okay, well, Peter Reynolds, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much, Greg. Well, that's it for another week. As always, thank you so much for listening. For much more information on the topics discussed today, check out the CLEAR website at clear-uk.org. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>